From the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond, you're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. So as many of you in the world of trauma know, Dr. Cotton is very well known for his research endeavors. He's prolific, and he's written quite a bit on the topic of hemostatic resuscitation. He's also talked a lot about whole blood, and in fact has one of the only RCTs on that very topic published in the Annals of Surgery back in 2013. And so I thought there was probably no better time, definitely no better person, to talk to us about some of the benefits and potential uses of whole blood in civilian trauma. And with all that said, Brian, it's always so good to see you, man. I would love to hear your thoughts. Looking back at the last 10, 12 years in terms of the trauma literature, what are a couple of the major advances that we've seen? And then I'd love to hear your thoughts on whole blood and maybe run through the potential benefits of that as another tool in our toolkit for treating bleeding trauma patients. Right. So, I, you know, I think it was a recognition that our patients weren't bleeding saline. Our patients weren't bleeding just red cells. Our patients were bleeding whole blood. Uh, and even if we weren't able to get to whole blood initially, we had to get back to as close to that as we could. And so that's where it really began the one-to-one-to-one therapy. And when starting to add back the plasma and platelets, and actually there was a presentation here at East this this week, which I found... I was glad to see it, but I was also kind of ashamed to see it because it was, don't forget the platelets, which to me was like, no kidding. Of course, that's the other part. Why are we forgetting platelets? That's, that shouldn't be a thing. Uh, and, and, and that's a key element that we, that we're losing, uh, by just doing one to one instead of truly one to one to one. And to me, it was almost a, it was, uh, it was gradually getting into the blood bankers and blood suppliers to get to whole blood, which was our end point. Our end game was whole blood. And so to slowly start back with, you know, maybe the early ratios were a two to one, but then segue into one to one on our way to get whole blood. <clears throat> and so by doing that, we were able to, again, push, push it slowly over time, get them to come on board rather than just overnight go whole blood you know, and ask for that. And so that was what was kind of part of the process. And I, and I definitely learned that from John Holcomb about, you know, you do the retrospective, you get your evaluation, you do these observational studies, and then you run out with a randomized trial, which is kind of what we did with a lot of the pr- processes. Whole blood, though, we kind of jumped in initially uh, right out of, the, out of the gate based on some DOD requests to do a randomized trial of whole blood. Uh, because again, it obviously makes sense uh, logistically in austere environments. Uh, it makes sense in uh, smaller, you know, countries, things like that. And one of our fellows, Harvey Hawes, who opened up a blood bank, whole blood blood bank, before we even had one in Fiji, uh, because it was just, it was logistically simpler to pull it out, donor, type it, and then give it rather than fractionate it, which they just could not pull off. And so that whole process of getting there is, 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 was part of the push, the slow push to get to whole blood. And then again, the whole blood, uh, again, now it's getting more popular, more interested. Cause again, I think we finally, again, we've slowly over time, drip, 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 got to a point where now our blood bankers are going, okay, now we think we can do this. Now we can pull this off. And, and it, they, they've already gotten to a point where they accept one to one to one. And so this, this is the ultimate one to one. It's interesting. So you mentioned a couple of things there. Number one, DOD, and obviously so much of what we do in civilian trauma care 
is informed from our military counterparts and their experiences. And, you know, when we talk about whole blood use right now, whether it's on social media, Twitter, TikTok, I'm, I'm surprised to hear so many people haven't heard of it. Uh, I know at Harbor, we've been using it for at least a couple years, same at LAC, USC, you've been using it and your study was back almost 10 years ago. You were studying modified whole blood uh, as a means of decreasing transfusion volumes. And, you know, when you look back at the military conflicts, whether it's World War One, Two, Vietnam, Korean War, they were giving low titer O whole blood all the time. And it wasn't until the Vietnam War where they started to fractionate things. We started to kind of think about this concept and notion of the, the third space and the need to fill that space with salt water. And then our whole sort of resuscitation strategy and paradigm, together with obvious kind of financial and other logistical blood banking uh, needs, just kind of changed and almost got forgotten about and so, yeah, like you mentioned, Dr. Holcomb, Phil Spinella, there have been some great trauma surgeons who have kind of helped bring this back. And obviously, you were also a big part of that. So from the early 2000s to now 2013, we've got uh, RCT and still to this date, one of the only RCTs in the literature. So maybe tell us a little bit about that. We don't come across RCTs in trauma literature too frequently uh, for a number of reasons, but I would love to hear about that, Dr. Cotton. And, you know, and again, I think that's a good point when you asked, you started the whole podcast asking about kind of the process and, and where we've been and where we've come and where we're going. That that study was one of those. So that we, we were approached by, again, DOD to do a, a randomized trial. Can't do a randomized trial in the military. So we pull it off in a civilian setting. And at the time, that whole blood became modified whole blood. It became modified whole blood based off of we weren't prepared to really give whole blood in, in a setting uh, to patients. And at the time, two things happened. One, we were giving modified whole blood. So it was had to go through a leukoreduction filter, which, again, I think the literature on leukoreduction is mixed. Right. And in trauma, there's not overwhelming. And so we don't use leukoreduced blood. Marty Schreiber at OHSU does. Uh, so the, the, it's mixed out there about whether you're going to do it or not. And if you do it, you have to put it through that filter to leukoreduce it. And that absolutely destroys platelets. Hence the reason it was called modified whole blood. So it was a, a platelet injured whole blood product that we were giving. And then on top of that, now we have progress where now there are blood filters that can come out that don't supposedly don't screw up the platelets or at least don't screw them up as bad as they were when we did our randomized trial. The other thing that's been a progress, which really has come out, is we used to have to give type-specific whole blood. And when we did our study, there wasn't enough data from Norway, from Spinel and others in the military setting looking at low titer blood group O whole blood at the time we were having to give type specific. So that study is interesting. And then again, we weren't given the product we wanted to because, because <laughs> the, uh, at the highest levels, they made us Luca reduce it. And we weren't being able to give it to everyone and in a, in a timely fashion. So during the study, the, the initial whole blood study, we had to uh, had people come in, the study personnel was there and they'd go, Dr. Cotton, uh, you want to randomize this patient? And But the real question that they would ask was, can you wait for type specific or do you need massive now? You know, are they bleeding? Or are they really, really bleeding? So the really, really bleeding patients didn't get study product. The really, really bleeding patients got our traditional one-to-one-to-one that we were using at Herman. And so 
we didn't end up getting the sickest of the sick. And you'll look at actually the, if you look at the mortality data in that study, it's all less than 10%. And we know that in the major hemorrhagic shock patient, you're going to be closer to about 20%. And back in that time frame, in the 20 to 30% range. So that was a big deal um, that kind of influenced that study. And the third problem with the study, uh, Again, I still think it was a winner because it showed hemostasis better in in, in the whole blood versus one to one to one. But the big problem is like a lot of these studies, somebody comes in and you think they're in hemorrhagic shock and they've got this horrible lethal head injury. And that's exactly what tortured us, not only in this, but actually later on in proper because whole blood, uh, literally whole blood stopped on the end of end of August and then the fir- or the end of July and the first of August we started proper. So they both went right into each other and it absolutely impacted both those studies. And it's hard to tease out a pure hemorrhagic shock patient population. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. Uh, There was uh, a modification to the study protocol. I think once you start to realize, yeah, we've got these severely injured intracranial hemorrhage patients. They are so hyperfibrinolytic and coagulopathic. But once you excluded those patients, uh, your analysis definitely demonstrated that transfusion volumes were less in patients who got the whole blood. Now, when we talk about modified whole blood and you you mentioned the platelets, and obviously platelets are critical to initial hemostasis. And so maybe for the listeners, I think there's sometimes some confusion when it comes to the benefits of whole blood, cold stored O whole blood, and regular apheresis platelets. So maybe what's the differences between the two? Is there a difference qualitatively as well as quantitatively? So we've looked at it head to head and we have not shown a big difference or a big drop off uh, when you have whole blood based platelet function versus regular platelet function. In fact, uh, you know, currently the current gold standard, if you will, for transfusing apheresis or packed platelets uh, coming from again, either a single donor with the apheresis or a group pooled platelets Um is to keep them at room temperature, keep them constantly on the little agitator, and if they if they if they contact you know even a, a bucket of ice, they they they're supposedly dead and dying and horrible and they can't work, and that's old old data that's that that kind of supports that theory. But what we've seen more recently, and we're getting actually ready to study and kind of uh, evaluate this through the Lights Network and Jason Sperry, in it, uh, is cold stored platelets. That maybe cold stored isn't bad; that they do retain their function. And so that's what, when you when you're looking at whole blood versus the traditional apheresis platelets, that's one of the big differences. Other than obviously you're pulling out and separating stuff, you have one at room temperature and one that's been cold. And so we have found the platelet function. Uh, at least early on, right. is maintained in cold, uh, cold stored whole blood. Once you start getting out in days, which again, you would get this with room temperature platelets, is that the platelet function integrity starts dropping off. But early on, it seems to have much, much more intact uh, platelet function, uh, at least through about seven and then 14 days, it really is, is gone, which makes sense based on the, the half-life of the, of the, uh, whole, of the platelets. For our listeners, I think one of the things we need to break down, and I know for us, when I first started using whole blood, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And you've already alluded to the fact that uh, in the past, people were advocating for type-specific whole blood. Now we're just giving O whole blood, whether it's negative or positive. But let's break it down. So we have cold stored, number one concept, low titer, O 
whole blood. And sometimes it's either Luca reduced or not. Uh, we don't use Luca reduced whole blood at Harbor, at LAC USC. They do. And we're also looking at a study to see is there really any difference in terms of febrile reactions, uh, any sort of transfusion related complications. So, so more data to follow. But let's break that down. So cold stored versus warm, fresh whole blood. Yeah, warm, fresh whole blood. I mean, you're talking about literally taking it straight from the patient in a military setting for the most part. Because uh, again, you're your civilian setting there's a, just a little bit too much more bureaucracy rather than in a, a deployed setting and the warm whole blood you're, you're there's no any temperature damage if there is any there's no temperature damage that's being caused and you're you're getting it literally straight from that patient you're not having to deal with the cold impact of rewarming the blood so again i'm not a basic scientist i dabble in it with some of one of our phds that i work closely with but i know that couple of concepts to take away from whole blood versus components and from cold versus whatever is if you freeze and thaw things, the proteins kind of start sucking, right? Don't do as well. And if you start breaking things apart and separating things, it's not as good. Uh, and so why, you know, don't get me wrong. They, they, they apheresis platelet concept works well and that performs well, but they all work better together. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a trauma team in, in, in the blood. They work better together. You need that plasma platelets rather than breaking them up and starting over. Right. Uh, but, but that's kind of gets into it. You want, you and I want, we drive cars. We don't drive parts shuffled back together for the most part, unless you're like a, a whiz mechanic, right? You pretty much drive the car that's been put together. Uh, and that's what we want. We want that whole car's performing best as a whole, not in its components. However, and again, this isn't to make the uh, blood industry sound like it's all about money. It's not. It's about serving more people, but they break it up. They chop it into parts. They're, you know, hematologic chop shop, I call it, right? You don't steal the car and sell the car and make more money. You break it into parts and make more money that way. But at the same time, not everyone needs plasma platelets. Maybe just the anemic guy or girl just needs some red cell. The coagulopathic maybe just needs a little bit of plasma to top it off. The bone marrow patient just maybe just needs some platelets. And all of the studies, so that gets back to some of that early stuff you were talking about around the Vietnam and when fractionation started, they did it and they studied it to show that they could separate it and it maintained integrity, but they didn't study it in hemorrhagic shock patients. In fact, two of the key studies that ATLS was founded on, and you and I learned when we were residents and trainees all the way up and we taught, was that you didn't need red cells until whatever. You don't need plasma. You don't need platelets. But those studies, if you go back and look to them, read past the abstract, it says you do not need platelets in a patient receiving whole blood. So you didn't need extra platelets if they were getting whole blood. You don't need plasma in this you know settings. And the the third study that goes into it about crystalloid safety says it is safe to deliver one liter of crystalloid over 45 minutes while waiting for type-specific whole blood. So we interpreted that and said crystalloids are safe, don't need plasma, don't need platelets, you know, and it just got totally askew. And, and But again, there was zero studies in hemorrhagic shock patients before they made that change. And so in the, the civilian world, we're using cold stored whole blood. When we talk about low titer, I think this is one of those concepts that people get a little confused about. Titers of what, what's the cutoff, and what's the big deal if there happens to be a, a whole bunch of IgG or IgM circulating in the system. So do you mind clarifying that for us, Brian? Sure. So obviously there is potential for antibody reaction, transfusion reactions, and other issues with uh, higher titers, if you are, you know, because again, we know from way back when, right, we can't give in general, uh, 
A to a B or a B to an A. Well, that's why the red cells, at least, the universal donor was O. The plasma universal donor was AB, all based on these antibodies. But what we've been able to see with the low titer O, blood group O, is that O can actually probably be a universal donor, not just on the red cell part of whole blood, but on the plasma as well. And the ability to do that is that you keep the attack dogs, if you will, those antibody titers, you keep them low enough. Uh, the, the probably, and again, it really goes to two things. One, can you pull it off in your population, right? Our population in Houston, most diverse city in the country, huge, huge city. Our antibody titers, our Gulf Coast Regional Blood Center, our you know Red Cross equivalent, cannot give us meaningful numbers of units of whole blood that are that low of one to one, uh, one to fifty. All right, but a lot of centers, a lot of more smaller and or you know uh, homogenous uh, areas, so Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. Mayo, they've got one to uh, one to fifty uh, or less than one to fifty um, titers. We are at two fifty six most of the time. Because that is as low as they can give us to keep our units going. Uh, and again, it really depends on your population, your donor pool, things like that. Uh, now, the good question would be, and again, it's, I don't know if you have this, it would have this information between Harbor and, and USC, is if there's an antibody titer difference between the two. I don't know if there is. But if one's using a higher one, one's using a lower one, to really look at those complications, that would be fascinating. Because I will tell you, in general, with us using the highest acceptable N, which is 256, so that we can maximize the number of units, we are not seeing big fibrillar reactions. We are not seeing major transfusion reactions. In fact, in all of our papers we've looked at, they are the exact same as those getting one-to-one-to-one, getting a literally, you know, O red cells, AB or low anti-A plasma, and getting platelets. So we have not seen that in, in, in our real-world setting, and I'm not sure that others have shown that as well. I will tell you from a hemolysis panels, hemolysis labs, no difference uh, at 256. And then the group at Pittsburgh, both in children and in adults, has shown that at the 150, 1 to 50 range, they aren't seeing it at, at either. So I don't know that there's superiority of one or the other. I think it's really going to be down to what your blood center can pull off. No, all very good points. And uh, you referred to to Pitt and they do have a nice paper where they actually kind of explain how they rolled out their whole blood program, which I would definitely refer people to. You also referred to the study out there that was actually presented at East. I think that was one of your papers talking about looking at hemolysis labs sort of within the first 24 hours in patients who got whole blood versus standard component therapy. And in fact, there were no reactions in the whole blood group. And if there were any reactions, it in fact happened in the opposite group that wasn't getting the whole blood. And again, this is a panel looking at things like creatinins, LDHs, haptoglobins, all the sort of things that we would typically look at in someone in whom we suspect hemolysis. Now, with regards to O blood, positive versus negative. So many of these early trials and some still to this day are only giving O negative. And we know that 15% of patients are going to be RH positive. We always worry about alloimmunization in pregnant women or women of childbearing age. How big of a risk is this to give someone O positive? I know at UCLA, they still continue with the O neg. At Harbor, we give O positive and we give it universally. Are we doing something wrong? So that's a great, great question. And again, it's literally down to something that we argue with or debate even in Houston. Um, so if you go back uh, and look at it, 
O negative obviously is is the way to go if you can pull it off. This this is very similar to the titer question, okay? Uh, the antibody titers. So with O neg versus O positive. So if you look at in San Antonio, you've got to look up uh, the San Antonio study on this. And I can't remember the exact title, but the word ubiquitous is in it. But there's a San Antonio paper where they just look at what they really have going on. So how many how many people would really be served or harmed if we gave everyone O positive versus O negative? And if you look at it, at least in Houston, we are at 90 to 91% of our patients are O positive, 90 to 91%. Now, again, very diverse city, but you go across the country and at most, you're probably going to see uh, around the uh, low 90s, high 80s. Most people, the majority of patients they take care of are O, are sorry, are blood group positive, RH positive. Moreover, if you start looking at who's going to be at risk, so all this discussion is really not about you and I getting it. This is about a childbearing age female getting O positive when she is O negative and threatening the life of her fetus later on. That's what every single bit of this whole process is about. And in doing so, we've really got to look at numerators and denominators. We've got to look at risk here. Because if you look at it again, so 90% of your population is not going to be O negative, uh, or sorry, is not going to be RH negative. In addition, that means a lot of your donors are not going to be negative as well. So you're going to be a, have a, a lot more RH positive products across the globe. Then you're saying, okay, who's going to be at risk? Childbearing age females. So females less than 50, if you will, even down to the peds because they have the potential later on. All right. Well, the majority of trauma patients, 75% or more are males because we do stupid stuff and are more likely to do stupid stuff, high risk behaviors. And then of the females that actually are going to be injured, a lot of them, as we know, are in that aging population category. So the number of patients that would be exposed that are childbearing age females that are presenting in hemorrhagic shock is incredibly low looking at the numbers. And so a lot of centers, San Antonio included, your center at Harbor, have just said, you know what, risk benefit, we're going to roll the dice on this. We can always give them and treat them for that antibody reaction. We can always give them uh, you know, the IV Rogam. Some people talk about giving the IM, but IM, you have to give a lot of shots. The IV would be the thing. And or you could do what we, we're trying to put together at our center is streamline them into a, uh, a MFM clinic that can monitor them, follow them, counsel them. And I, actually, our, 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 our uh, MFM people have been wonderful about offering up that that services almost to see them back in clinic anytime we have one. And we have one of those. You know, we I think we'd average like one or two a month that we might actually have that would even be close to being exposed. The other part of the San Antonio paper is is they took and they looked at how many patients based on those numbers I gave you of how many are male, female, RH positive, RH negative risk of it, uh, and and broke it down. And they also evaluated something incredibly uh, interesting. So if you come in or let's say uh, you know female comes in with just a femur fracture, awake talking on her phone, we've seen that when we show up in the trauma bay. Uh, her chances, if you give her whole blood, which again, she doesn't need because she's not in hemorrhagic shock, but if you give her whole blood, yeah, she has a pretty decent chance of, of making a transfusion reaction. 70% maybe or higher. However, that same female comes in in profound shock, femur, hemorrhage into her pelvis, spleen, liver. She goes in and she is dying and we pull the dying blood product off the shelf whole blood, and we give it to her, they have put it into single-digit risks in those patients because the, the immune system is not going after and saying, hey, you know what? I want to make some antibodies to attack a fetus later. The immune system, the whole endothelium and everything else is going, 
I'm going to try to stop bleeding right now and stop everything going crazy in this SERS response and things like that. So it's redirected. And so the risk in the profound hemorrhagic shock is even smaller. And what they, they looked at, and, I, and I'll let you go to the paper, but it was like they would, it would take 250 years to amass a hundred women that would have needed to be, to be dealt with on a, on a higher level for a potential uh, hemolytic disease in newborn. So, yeah. Fantastic teaching points, and I love the analogies. And yeah, I think it's so important to look at your local population, figure out what the sort of demographics and the epidemiology is, and then we need to adapt our transfusion practices accordingly. And like you said, um, I love how you called it. What did you call it? The the dying product. I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, even if a woman was to come in pregnant, if she's in hemorrhagic shock and dying, and you have access to a product that will give you more bang for your buck and that's been demonstrated to be safe, I think that's the major concern at that time. If they need to be desensitized later, fantastic. And good on your MFM people to want to get involved like that to carry out some follow-up and and further care. That's wonderful. You know, one thing, Dennis, that, that a lot of people don't pick up on, and this was one of the nuances in our paper that we, the safety paper, was that the only little trend towards more hemolysis was actually in the one-to-one-to-one group, not in whole blood, which makes sense because somebody got one donor, the other one got three donors, at least three. If it was pooled platelets, more than that. So the the risks, since we know that every unit sucks to the patient, yes, it's going to save their life, but there's harm for a kidney injury, pulmonary injuries, all those things we're worried about with blood is bad. Yeah, it, it is until it saves your life, but then it's still sequela. If I can expose you to less donors, they are giving blood. That's where whole blood wins the day. They have less donor exposures, less hits for units of blood product. In addition to trauma patients, whether it's in the pre-hospital setting or in the ER, do you envision whole blood being rolled out to other parts of the hospital and to other specialties like one-to-one-to-one or the major transfusion protocols have? On, on the, first, I'll, I will just plug on the pre-hospital thing, just when you bring that up, my philosophy, I think we talked about this, you know, at over drinks and, 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 and other places in this meeting, whatever you believe is the best product in the world to save a life, whether it's a device, whether it's a tourniquet, uh, whether it is a blood product, hemostatic agent, it should be as close to the patient as possible. It should be as close to the uh, point of bleeding as possible. That's why you know you've got AEDs and uh, uh, airports. We all, we also have stop the bleed kits in all of our high schools, all of our elementary schools. Even as as, as morbid as a discussion as that is, that's where it needs to be. It doesn't need to be at my hospital because if you wait until it gets to my hospital, it's too late for the tourniquet, right? It needs to be deployed as soon and close as it can. Whole blood, if if you believe whole blood is the go-to product, it ought to be on the helicopters. In fact, when we had a, a debate, and I'll tell you this as well, when we had a discussion about supply and where to put it, we voted to put it on the helicopters first. Then when we had enough, we started putting it in our ED. And then we only recently started actually using whole blood for the massive coolers. We traditionally just do whole blood on the helicopter, whole blood in the ED, and then their massive is actually a one-to-one-to-one because we were prioritizing the oh-my-God product. The right. dying product needs to be closer. And so that's why we put it on all, all the helicopters and then again in the ED. So that's that's uh, that, that's just something to plug on that. And so earlier you mentioned OHSU and Marty Schreiber, and they've obviously been using whole blood for a while. And he was actually saying that they don't just give two units and then go to one-to-one-to-one. They have so much stock and supply 
FDI that they'll give patients upwards of 50 plus units of whole blood. So what are you currently doing in your practice and where do you see this going into the future? Are we going to see like a proper trial for whole blood? No. So I think we're going to be seeing that here uh, in the next couple of years. I know the Lights Network and we've been working with Sperry on that as well is planning to do a pre-hospital whole blood study. Again, believing that whatever the product that we want to really study should be as close to the patient as possible. So that should be coming out the pike pretty soon. We do not go to that number. So we'll, uh, yeah, again, we have two helicopters, sorry, six helicopters, but two units of whole blood on each helicopter as well as component therapy. So they all, let's say a patient gets two on the helicopter. They're really sick. Uh, they're going to get maximum of four units of whole blood in our ER. But in general, if you're getting all four of those units in the ER, you've been in the ER too long. Usually the units that they get, and if you look at our study population, it's two to four yeah. uh, unit break. It's not a lot. The only exception being if they are a direct to OR, so they go helipad to OR and bypass the ER, the first cooler will actually come out with four units of whole blood. So they'll get that big boost up. As much as I love whole blood, at some point, you're going to have to get, you know, control this bleeding and are starting to make some headways. And that's where I think we start going into the one-to-one and or nuance our blood products with viscoelastic testing in the, in the OR that we're running multiple times every 15 minutes or so uh, to get to kind of figure out if we're missing on something. And uh, I don't know if you're going to get to it here in a minute, but it's one of those products that's starting to get sexy right now, which is cryoprecipitate mm-hmm. or fibrinogen replacement. And I will tell you, so there was an interesting study, <clears throat> and I'll go ahead and say it, and I won't feel too bad because it's going to be uh, published in the discussion section in Jack's here soon. But there was a study out of Denver that was presented at Southern Surgical just the last December here, and they found a 15% incidence of hypofibrinogenemia. And they argued, hey, guys, we need to start putting cryoprecipitate back in our massive transfusion coolers. Well, we looked at it almost a decade ago in Houston and pulled it from our massive transfusion coolers because we didn't think we were getting into needing it because we were so far forward with one-to-one-to-one early plasma. And I will tell you one of the nuances that I asked and pushed the discuss it at the, or the, the presenter at the time, Jonathan Mezoso, who was a fellow at uh, Denver now back in Miami where he's from. Uh, I said, Jonathan, you know, I, I think I got the answer for you. Uh, I just looked it up on my computer and we had less than 1% hypofibrinogenemia in our massive patients. You have 15%. There's a big difference. We use whole blood and one-to-one-to-one, and you guys use two-to-one. If you gave more plasma, I don't think you'd have hypofibrinogenemia. But not to say that cryoprecipitate doesn't have a place. Uh, We just finished uh, a randomized controlled trial of cryoprecipitate versus standard massive transfusion uh, with the UK group, the Cryostat 2, and we're hoping to see that. We were excited and interested, should I say, motivated to see if we could get involved in this study. We tried to get some other centers. We couldn't. We were the only U.S. center, but we were really motivated to get U.S. representation because we felt it was important to show what our practice was because in the UK, very frequently, they are not delivering liquid plasma. They don't have it ready to go. And a lot of the centers, they're having to thaw the plasma to get it going in. We don't have that. And I wanted to show a very aggressive, progressive, far forward uh, plasma early resuscitation process and see if cryo is needed in that setting versus in the setting that is being practiced in a lot of the UK and Europe, which again, it would be very interesting to see. I suspect they might find a signal, but I want, I really wanted our representation in there to just to show that maybe if, if what, what comes out of our center, you know, I plan on looking at our center data and once it's released uh, separately, just to see if, if, if at a, at a center that's so, early with plasma pre-hospital as well as liquid plasma, not having to thaw it, uh, I think it's worth uh, worth considering and, and trying to figure out whether or not you really need a fibrinogen replacement or not. 
It seems like every week we're investigating some new blood product, whether it's a blood product substitute or another adjunct. And so, yeah, the group out of Denver, they've certainly done some fantastic work when it comes to the world of uh, viscoelastic assays, as well as resuscitation. We're drawing attention to the importance of hypocalcemia in bleeding trauma patients. And like you mentioned, whether we're substituting with uh, fibrinogen, cryoprecipitate, PCC, it seems like uh, the options are endless. Now, one simple, quick, cheap, easy fix is potentially TXA. Still seems to be a lot of debate out there. You either love it or you hate it. Are you a lover or are you a hater? I mean, I think Twitter would 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 show my cards on this one, even if I said regardless. And I don't, I don't, I don't hate TXA. Uh, I think, as I've said before, I think uh, if you suck at resuscitation, or or if you can't do a good resuscitation because you're in an austere environment, you're waiting on thawed plasma, all those little things. I think TXA is a game changer. I think their data shows that, uh, and. But I don't know that it really is a value in a mature trauma center that is utilizing, again, very far forward resuscitation, plasma first, things like that. So again, I, I'm definitely on the, on the skeptical TXA side, which is fine. Uh, I will say, based on the data that is out there um, in multiple trials, the key, if you're going to get a, a, a benefit, if you're going to get a benefit from hemorrhagic shock with TXA, you've got to give it early, number one. You've got to give it early because the CRASH-2 trial secondary analysis absolutely shown it's dangerous after three hours, which makes sense based on what all the coags are doing at that time. And it needs to be in profound shock. The CRASH-2 trial showed less than 75. The STAMP trial from Sperry showed less than 70. Those were the people that benefited. So, in general, if we're going to hot helipad to OR, direct to OR, we're going up and the patient is profound shock, I give TXA. I do. Because I don't have time to wait for the tag. Uh, if I have time to wait for the tag, I wait for the tag. But it's someone that's in profound shock, again, less than 75, 70 systolic, really going, going, going to hell. That patient's going to get it, but they're not going to get the one gram, one gram stuff, which I yeah. think is just garbage. They're going to get two or three grams minimum. And if you think about it... If you're going to give that low of a dose of TXA, and this gets back into a lot of geeky stuff that I'm not going to get into just based on time, but the calocrine and this and that and blah, blah, blah. But if you're going to give TXA systemically, you need to give a bigger dose. You need to be giving two and three grams, uh, maybe up to four grams like they were doing in cardiac surgery before. But the one gram is not going to pull it off. Now, probably the, one of the best benefits of TXA, and I haven't done this, and I'd love to do this, and maybe somebody listening will, will do this study because I just don't have the bandwidth for it, is to spray down some lap pads with TXA and pack that into a liver. Systemically, you need to give a lot higher doses. Locally, you could give small doses. And that's where you know the experience from the OMFS guys, the, the, the total joint people do the same thing where they're given spraying it directly on versus doing it systemically and getting actually just as good, if not better results. I, I like the idea of topical or local TXA. Like you mentioned, the ENT folks have been doing that for quite a while, our ortho colleagues, etc. Now, in addition to these hemostatic adjuncts, uh, I wanted to just shift gears a little bit and then we'll come back and I want to hear some of your final thoughts regarding whole blood moving into the future. Recently, there was a young physician uh, out of your home state 
who was touting the benefits of hypertonic saline for COVID patients. And, and the idea here was that it's uh, got a high osmolality, it's going to stay intravascular, it's going to pull fluid out of the interstitial space and the lungs, it's going to dry up the lungs, and, and patients are going to pee and you can avoid intubation. And I, I kind of made this comment that, you know, in the world of trauma, we've been using hypertonic saline for years, decades. We've done studies, RCTs, looking at different patient populations, whether they're in hemorrhagic shock, requiring out-of-hospital resuscitation, or patients with traumatic brain injury. And we continue to use hypertonic saline if someone has a symptomatic uh, hyponatremia. You know, their sodium's less than 120 they're seizing, they're getting a bolus of hypertonic. And uh, again, you did a, a wonderful study looking at uh, starting 30 cc's of hypertonic saline in patients with open abdomens and found that that actually helped to improve fascial closure rates. We also use it a lot in the ICU. What do you think about this notion or concept, Brian? 100 cc's of hypertonic saline and avoid the intubation. The things he was saying made sense on the words he was using, right? It absolutely is going to mobilize fluid. It works and upregulates aquaporin channels and things like that and mobilizes fluid 100%. That's how it, Chuck Cox showed that at our center way, way ago in, in, in animal models that it's working and, and decreasing mesenteric and intestinal edema, which is what got me so excited about using it in open abdomens that were, were swollen. Brain, brain, same thing. Uh, mobilizing secretions. We still use, we'll use some hypertonic down their ET tube on patients. So they're, they're, they're having some secretion problems and helps them clear it, helps them mobilize and break them up and, and helps them, uh, you know, pull it out. But the biologic plausibility is, I think, where it stops with this kid. Um, he, he, he claimed a hundred mLs of 3% was going to cure COVID. Uh, and which was, again, uh, <laughs> Does it make, again, there's no biologic plausibility to it. Um, if you were going to tell me you're going to put them on a drip or you're going to give them the, 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 you know, the, the salt bombs, that's another story. But the volume of, of 3%, a hundred mLs is so small that I don't see where it comes into play. Now, if he was advocating for maybe, Hey, helping work their secretions, like we were talking about, Hey, give some nebulizer, you know, down the ET tube, uh, hypertonic, and we'll help them with their secretions, maybe help them clear. And if that keeps them from being innovated, that makes sense. But a hundred ML systemically, that's going to magically cure the lungs, uh, is just silly. And I don't know if he just got his MLs mixed up. If maybe that's a hundred liters, <laughs> you know, I mean, again, something you want, something's going to really break up secretions. That's fine. But IV systemic hundred ML bolus is just, that makes no sense. That's why I had to ask you, BAC. I mean, if anyone likes hypertonic saline, uh, it's you and Peter Reed. And I know he's a 23% guy. Yeah. <laughs> So, so listen, brother, I know you have to catch a plane and uh, you've been super awesome to, to show up and do this with me, brother. Any final take home points? So when we're thinking about, and again, we didn't really even talk about it, but if you are thinking about starting up a whole blood program uh, at your hospital, you obviously need to be touching base with the blood bank and the blood bank director. And this is not something new. Uh, I was amazed to learn that the Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines have had a whole blood transfusion program since 2008. And so if a cruise liner can do this, then I'm sure that with the effort and dedication of the people at your shop, you can get this off the ground. But uh, Dr. Cotton, moving forward, what do you see in terms of uh, the future 
of whole blood? And are we going to see any new changes in terms of our balanced or our approach to hemostatic resuscitation? So whole blood, I think more and more centers are going to come on board. The American Red Cross is all supportive of this. Uh, one of the biggest, you know, pushers of this. AABB is getting on board as well. I think if you're thinking about it, you should be doing it. You should be approaching and finding out if it's feasible to pull off at your center. And again, it all goes back. A lot of it's going to be bureaucracy or or red tape might be at the, at the lab level, at the pathology blood bank level. But if you can get your blood provider, the people that are actually collecting it, processing it, and sending it out to your hospital, if you get them on board, I think you will be successful with it. I think whole blood is the way to go. Again, I think we're going to find out who gets it and who really needs it and benefits from it uh, here soon in the fact that, again, I, I, I describe the, the, the product as the dying product. So again, a patient comes in my trauma center now and they're hypotensive, uh, but they don't look like they're, they're, they're sick. They're probably going to go to the OR, but they don't have that death appearance phenotype. I'm grabbing plasma. I'm going plasma first, and I'm probably going to start with two and then go from there. Whole blood is, is my, oh my God product. You know, I, we have an, uh, an OR that I call the, oh, oh my God, or I saw something else, but it's that OR room. And I try to preserve that for the, oh my God, uh, crashing patient. Uh, and that's kind of how I try to treat whole blood is it's the, oh my God product. Um, I think plasma will see a resurgence. Uh, as a plasma first, I know Juan Duchesne and I have talked about this forever, but starting with, with plasma first, most of our patients are not dying of anemia. They are not dying of oxygen carrying capacity deficiencies. Our patients are dying from volume and coagulation issues and the best product around for that. Yes. Whole blood is amazing. Uh, and it's probably the most complete product, but if you can't pull that off, plasma is the bomb, the highest oncotic agent, keeping, uh, the intravascular volume intact, restoring it. If it's gone, uh, coagulation factors. Yes, it's low in fibrinogen, but it's still got enough. If you give it early on, you don't get into that trap, in my opinion, and acid base buffer capacity that beats anything on the planet. So that's, that's a good thing, getting them out of that shock. And the, we know the, the adrenal receptors don't respond as much to exogenous or endogenous catecholamines when their pH is below a certain level. So that helps that. And again, if you're wrong, you've just given them the best endothelial stabilizer volume expander on the planet. You haven't driven their crit to 60. Uh, you think the patient's in profound shock and ends up not being that. And oh, now their crit 60 because you gave whole blood. Plasma is a lot more forgiving. And then I, I do think there's going to be an uptick in the case Centra or the you know, four factor PCCs because there's a lot of push for it. And there's some studies that are getting ready to come out. Uh, I'm not a big advocate for that. I think we can get it done by other means. Uh, now, do we think it rapidly reverses INR and it should be the go-to for re- reversing INR or, or maybe even for head bleeds? I got you on that. But in hemorrhagic shock, I really don't know where it stands. But again, we're going to ready to see a, a couple of randomized trials here in the next uh, year or two using that product. The other one's going to be fibrinogen replacement, whether that be fibrinogen purified, whether that be cryoprecipitate, some of the other products coming out. But again, I would still argue that if you're if you're doing it right and you're doing it early and as close to the patient bleeding event as possible, you're not going to need that much cryoprecipitate that often or fibrinogen replacement that often. And then the final thing I'll leave you on as far as products is at some point here, and I've been ranting seven plus years on Twitter about it, at some point we're going to get a freeze-dried plasma product that is going to have an extended shelf life 
than all the people that couldn't pull off liquid ready-to-go plasma. The people that either have plasma, but it's all frozen. They have thought it takes X amount of minutes and slows down the resuscitation, or they just can't pull it off at all. Those people are now going to have an opportunity to have freeze-dried plasma. Uh, I don't think I'll carry it at our hospital, but I think it'll be on our helicopters. I think we'll we'll ask all of our satellite hospitals that send us patients to have it. I think it could be on EMS units. I think the freeze-dried possibilities are endless, and I'm excited to, to, to listen and look forward.